Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is actually Mark's wife, Amy. Mark has been sick and his voice is really croaky, so he asked me to read the introduction to this episode, which was recorded when his voice was normal. Joining Mark for episode 335 is Barry O'Reilly, and they'll be talking about Barry's latest book, Unlearn, Let Go of Past Successes to Achieve Extraordinary Results. Barry is a business advisor, entrepreneur, and author who pioneered the intersection of business model innovation, product development, organizational design, and cultural transformation. He's also going to be presenting a webinar tomorrow, March 6th, that Mark is hosting with Kinexus titled, Why Great Leaders Must Unlearn to Succeed in Today's Exponential World. You will find a link to register for the live webinar or to view the recording at leanblog.org slash 335. In this episode, Barry and Mark chat about topics including experimental approaches to entrepreneurship, how leaders need to make it safe for people to try new things, and why you have to unlearn before you can learn something new. That's the pathway that allows you to achieve breakthrough results. These are good ideas in business, and they also talk about an interesting case of tennis legend Serena Williams and how she reinvented her game to extend her greatness. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Again, the webpage is leanblog.org 335. Barry, hi. Thank you for being a guest and joining us today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks very much for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I want to spend a lot of our time today talking about unlearn, but I was wondering first, you know, I always like to ask people kind of the general question of how did you get introduced to lean? You know, if you can talk a little bit about your career going from software development to consulting and and looking at business issues, business models, can you tell a little bit of that story? Um, yeah, so I, I sort of really f- sort of fell my way into that, to be honest. Uh, uh, in university, I studied software engineering. And um, one of my sort of first real jobs after university was in a, a small startup. We were uh, building uh, games for mobile phones just uh, around the 2000s. Um, and uh, uh, just after, if you ever had a Nokia phone, there was a game on Nokia called Snake. And you could sort of... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... Just after the, the next in sort of innovation of those phones, they had really small uh, processors on them that you could sort of port over, uh, you know, computer games from the 70s and 80s onto phones. And um, the technology was very new; it was naive, which meant that it was really poor, totally undocumented, and, and nothing really worked as it said on the tin. And um, so we were sort of a small startup trying to figure out how to use this new technology, trying to upskill uh, people who had some understanding of it with others. And um, we were sort of uh, figuring that out. And, and uh, I was a big researcher. And, and one of the things I sort of came across was I heard that the uh, U.S. Department of Defense, when people were writing uh, software, they often used to have two people sit at a desk. Uh, one person would be writing, the other person would be reviewing. And... Um, this was sort of like a way of pairing. And, and that sort of opened my eyes to um, this idea of some agile methodologies like paired programming. 
Um, and uh, that sort of op- started opening this door to me then that there were people who were finding ways to manage uncertainty and, and sort of complexity of building uh, software products with new behaviors. Um, and as well as not just sort of building uh, new things, people were trying to figure out, well, what are the right things to build and, and great ways to sort of manage uh, uncertainty through experimentation. And, and a lot of these sort of researchers and problems that I had sort of led me to find a lot of these sort of methods um, and over time that sort of I, I started to then be interested in software but I just got very interested in product development overall and understanding you know should we build things rather than could we build them and um, that sort of moved me more into a lot more product management roles and experimentation roles and uh, that that was quite exciting for me about uh, working with customers to understand their needs, designing problems to fit those needs, uh, and and that really sort of spawned that whole uh, aspect for me of going from engineer to product management. And you know, our startup uh, at the time uh, we built this game called Wireless Pets. It, it it went on to become the most popular game in Europe. Our company sort of exploded, and. Um, you know, but we didn't really know how to run a company. We were just four uh, people, a tiny little place in, in Scotland. And um, we had like Sony and Sega and all these companies ringing us up, asking us how to build these games because no one was really doing it. Um, but, it, you know, it was, a, it was a great experience for me in learning um, new methods, getting a little bit outside my comfort zone, trying new things, figuring out what worked, what I liked, what I didn't like. Um, and and that that sort of whole um, approach uh, in sort of my my I guess my natural behaviour, a lot of that has now started to be sort of catified in a lot of these things that I found in Lean and or, or later Lean startup and a lot of these methods that are really advocating taking an experimental approach to whatever you're doing. And um, so when I found all these sort of um, you know, catification, I suppose, of, of these methods. It was a real like aha moment for me. And it gave me a language that I could talk to other people about uh, what I was doing to try and solve uh, things that I didn't know the answer to straight away. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was just, it was a great moment for me because not only did I find a lot of thinking, I just found lots of great people who cared about this stuff and, and a new community. And that was really exciting for me too as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like that evolution of going from the technical question of can we build something to the question of should we build it points to then some of your exposure. I mean, that makes me think, you know, the, those two questions, especially the should we build it, makes me think of Steve Blank and Eric Reese and the Lean Startup concept. So how did some of your discovery start shifting into that direction of, of Lean Startup practices? Well, it was it was literally uh, because I was the engineer on the sort of can we build it side of of that question. You know, we we started to slowly but surely, especially in the startup. You know, we were building uh, good technical products, but you know, often when we were shipping them to customers, uh, they weren't using them the way we expected. So we might have these very elegant solutions, but they weren't addressing the real problem. And I know, and and it really sort of got me curious then about that side of the equation. And um, you know, I started to want to go out and spend time with customers. I used to, we used to try and invite them into our office. We'd get people to start using our products as we were building them. 
And um, it just sort of then, you know, again, it was like just another aha moment, but just sort of unlocked another constraint, I guess, in this sort of from idea to delivery sort of value stream idea that, you know, we, we need to spend time with customers to understand their problems. Then we need to validate the problem. We need to build a solution to, to see if it fits that problem and then scale a solution. And it, it sort of, um, again, it was just sort of a, uh, as I saw these sort of challenges based on where I started, it just sort of moved me along um, on, on, on that journey. Um, and that, yeah, really what's opened up uh, when Eric Reese published the sort of lean startup in, in 2010, by that stage, I'd sort of uh, been through the startup. I had worked in another company that was a, a multi-international initiative to try and create next generation e-learning content uh, for kids. So we were actually building games to teach kids arithmetic and languages. Uh, it was a, a $800 million fund by uh, countries in uh, the Asia Pacific uh, region, because um, we were trying to like deliver uh, all these this content all all around Asia and Australia, and and I was seeing all these problems that we you know that we weren't building things that people knew how to use, the teachers didn't know how to use, the kids knew how to use, and then I moved on to uh, consulting with a company called ThoughtWorks which some people in your podcast might know as uh, one of the first companies to really advocate uh, agile software methods in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, Martin Fowler, who is one of the real most followed people probably in the agile space, uh, works there. And um, you know, it gave me this sort of, again, exposure to people who were really passionate about these ideas, who were, were actually working on building tools to make things happen in the space. So a lot of open source work in ThoughtWorks and people finding tools that help you do more software deployments. So it was a great sort of um, environment for me to be challenged with my thinking, to work with really outstanding thinkers and peers. And that that, that sort of led me then into this world of um, being startup with Eric's book coming out and people interested about the right product to build and then building it in the right way. And it was just really a nice convergence of all, of all these things that came together. And um, it was exciting for me because a lot of ThoughtWorks clients at the time were generally sort of larger scale organizations. And, and they were asking the question that, you know, lean startup, is, is that just for startups? We're a, we're a big, big company. Um, and, you know, because uh, a lot of my clients were, you know, Fortune 500 companies that were, trying to change, know that they needed to change, but just didn't know how to change. And, you know, product development was one part of the experimentation piece for them, but they also needed to think about how they changed their budgeting systems, how they changed their internal processes, HR, hiring processes, all all these things that are part of a, a, a big system that a company is. And it's really not just experimentation about building a new idea, They've got to experiment with their existing products. They've got to find new products. They've got to scale things that are, are working well and, um, and then build a whole load of sort of supporting functions around that that allow experimentation to happen in a safe and controlled manner. And, um, you know, that, that was really then a bit of a, another sort of convergence moment for me where I was working uh, in ThoughtWorks uh, with Jez Humble, who people might be familiar with, wrote the continuous delivery book, which is probably sort of a seminal book in software engineering for how you do 
rapid releases to enable experimentation in software. Uh, Joanne Molesky, who was our head of governance, risk and compliance in ThoughtWorks. So she was working in these big bureaucratic organizations and helping them understand how they can start to move away from this sort of plan-based to a more experimental approach in their governance, risk and compliance. And then my sort of perspective was very much from a product development, uh, business strategy and uh, people development point of view. How do we create this um, experimentation in those areas? And and that sort of cross-functional group that we were um, decided to answer this question of, well, if you're not a startup and you're a larger organization, you know, how do you adopt these practices? And that's really where um, the seed for the, the first book I wrote called Lean Enterprise, uh, How High Performance Organizations Innovate at Scale, really came from. Yeah, and can you talk a little bit more about that book? You know, it was part of a, a series of books that that Eric Reese, um, I don't know, he didn't, I don't know, if, what's the right word? He didn't publish, but he, he was sort of the champion of a series of books. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I think that's the best way to describe it. He was the series editor. And, um, you know, like uh, he worked at O'Reilly Media to, to pull this series together. And uh, we were uh, delighted to be part of that series. And um, again, it, w- it was a great collection of people, uh, people like Ash Marura, who wrote Running, Running Lean. You had uh, Laura Klein, who did work on the UX type. Um, great stuff from Alistair Crowe and Ben Yarbits about uh, lean analytics. So it's a really great sort of canon of of, of books and thinking in this space. And um, yeah, I think again, it's a, another great reference for your listeners. If anybody who's interested in trying to apply some of these uh, principles and practices, and maybe you're in UX, or maybe you're interested in metrics, or maybe you're interested in starting businesses, or are managing it in large enterprises, there's sort of a skew in the series for you. And, um, you know, I think once people sort of dive into the series, they, a lot of them end up reading them off. That's what I keep hearing. So, <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. And, and, and in, this, in this book, I mean, in this context, how do you define lean enterprise? Is, is it really a question of large organizations being more agile, better meeting customer needs and building things that should be built? Or I'm, I'm just curious what some of the boundaries are. How, how do you define that term in the book, lean enterprise? Yeah, so we we uh, take the two words. So lean again, uh, really driven from the sort of five principles, and are really five behaviors that uh, Wilmax and Jones sort of documented of you know, understanding who your customer is, looking at the end-to-end value streams, incrementally pursuing continuous improvement. All, all the things I think a lot of people who are interested in lean, those principles that they value. But the way we define an enterprise is a complex adaptive system composed of a common purpose. And, you know, the reason that we choose that word to describe an enterprise is um, I'm a big uh, student of of system thinking and uh, understanding that uh, organizations are complex adaptive systems. And the way that we manage complexity in that world is through experimentation, through uh, trial and error, gathering information based on hypotheses we, that we have and experiments that we run to inform our next steps. So as we try to evolve uh, these systems, experimentation is such a great part of that. Just like when you're trying to build new products in, in new markets, 
you know, they're also complex adaptive systems. So by launching products and seeing how people re- respond to that, what information you gather and using that to inform your next step on the product. For us, all of these things are at a, at a, at a high level are, are similar. Um, and that's why it was important for us to define that, that aspect. And um, yeah, that, that's really how, how we define these things, inspired by the principles of, of uh, lean manufacturing and Toyota's work. And then this this idea of complex adaptive systems, and but composed by a common purpose. You know, the reason you're in a company is because it's explicit about what its purpose is, and you're drawn to that, and that's what brings harmony, harmony and clarity, and and purpose to these complex systems and drives them in a direction. So that's why we tried to define it in that manner. Yeah. So let's shift and talk about. Your, your new book, Unlearn, because you know, I think this is a really, really important topic. And, and, and one of the thoughts that comes to mind here, you talk about complex adaptive systems and I'll, I'll propose, and I'll be curious to hear your thoughts and then you know, talk about um, how you frame this in the book, but that one of the things organizations and leaders maybe need to unlearn is this idea of I'm going to put together a three-year plan, or I want a roadmap for how I'm going to implement Lean in my organization. And part of me thinks of that as perhaps being a waste of time, like putting together the traditional startup business plan of like, you can't project three or five years out. Um, yeah. And instead of having this, this supposedly perfect plan that we're just going to go and implement, it's better to think about cycles of learning and taking a more adaptive approach, which makes a lot of people uncomfortable because they say, well, no, just give me the plan. Um, so I'm curious, like maybe in that context, what are your thoughts there? And you can sort of, you know, frame things as, as you've put it in, in the book on learn. Well, you know, again, what I, what I was finding, especially on the back of uh, lean enterprises, and um, there was a, a lot of companies, especially at the moment are going through these massive transformations and, you know, they do want this certainty of if we create the plan, that means we've thought about everything and really we just need to execute the plan and then we're done, right? Um, and like even helping people start to unlearn that, you know, transformation projects are for me something that needs to be unlearned. We have to recognize that we're in a state of continuous transformation. It, it's not an event. And really building this capability to continuously adapt to changing circumstances is is the capability to build. And I think, so then when new challenges come up, it doesn't matter. You've got a system to solve problems and your organization can adapt based on the purpose or the outcomes you're aiming for. And you've got this system to adapt in line with that. And... um, you know, so many of these programs were failing, especially when I was in ThoughtWorks. I was visiting a lot of these clients who were, you know, two years into their three-year plan. Nothing was delivered. People were busy. Millions of dollars had been spent, but, there, but they weren't achieving any outcomes. And people were losing sort of hope. And, and really what I was trying to do was to start to show people that what was really, really important is that you get clarity around the purpose and the outcomes that you're aiming for. And then you put systems in place to allow teams to figure out, well, what can I do to drive towards that outcome? And then give them the space and and the opportunity to sort of experiment their way towards that and learn what works and what doesn't. And it being okay that if you had a belief that 
the way we would digitally transform was to launch a new product in a certain market for a set of customers and that product wasn't working a good result was to to learn that as cheaply and quickly as possible and then move on to your next idea and and what i found with too many companies is that they had come up with this idea two years ago that may have been relevant in that time and context but the world had changed technology had changed customer had changed so they were building something that didn't solve a problem or have a purpose anymore but because the plan said they would deliver it they were following it because if they didn't they would get in trouble because their budgeting and governance system said we've given you a million dollars you must spend a million dollars over the next 3 years otherwise you have failed on this project and um again it just seems uh, like the wrong thing to look at rather than customer outcomes people are looking at uh, business spending outputs and and that it was a massive problem and um i saw that everywhere and um but one company i was lucky enough to, uh, to sort of work with over the last few years is capital one and one of the sort of really interesting parts for me is uh, i was working with their leadership team and you know they realized that they were in danger of getting into this output business people were measuring success as am i on time am i on budget did i build all the features i said in the plan and they they were recognizing they weren't getting the outcomes that they wanted so we sort of shifted the whole way that the leadership would describe success for what they were aiming for over the next 1 to 2 years we would describe everything in terms of customer outcomes we want to in- reduce customer churn by 20% on the mobile app in the next 2 years we want to increase the amount of um, savings the customers have with us by 15% in the next 2 years and and these were the kind of uh, outcomes that the leadership team would ask of their teams and then they would stop and then they would manage the uncertainty of that by monthly meeting with the teams who were figuring out how to achieve those outcomes and reviewing the progress that they would make and then adapting both the outcomes we were aiming for and the approach the teams took as they moved towards those outcomes and you know what we found is that the time that they spent in planning was drastically reduced maybe 30 to 45% the time they spent on execution was increased by 20 to 35% and then the teams were happier people were um, making more progress uh, and if anyone follows uh, capital one like their growth over the last uh, 5 years has been literally exponential they probably have the best technology infrastructure platforms of all the banks out there and all of this has come from the leadership team getting better at defining outcomes in creating systems to allow teams to experiment learn what works and what doesn't work and and the results they're having are truly exponential and this was a big on learning moment for their leadership team and um stuff that I go into greater detail in in on the unlearn book but uh, really that's the kind of way i'm seeing the companies that sort of have these extraordinary results really are working in these ways they're they're letting go of the plan for certainty and talking more about outcomes we're aiming for using iteration and experimentation to manage the uncertainty and when uncertainty is high they work in small iterations and learn what works make it safe to fail mm-hmm. and and but, but gather this great information to make good investment decisions based on what they learn yeah uh, well, 
There's, I mean, that makes me think of, I mean, there are some organizations out there that are unlearning the traditional budgeting cycle. There's a whole movement and a methodology out there called Beyond Budgeting, which is uh, really interesting to look at. And, you know, the, when, you, when you talk about focusing on purpose rather than dictating all the steps of the plan, I, I don't know if you've read um, General Stanley McChrystal's book um, where he talks about the idea of uh, commander's intent, where instead of just the um, kind of the traditional command and control of, you know, telling people what to do, you know, go take that hill. In, in Team of Teams, he talks about some of the evolution of saying, well, you, you communicate the intent. The, communicate, the, the intent is to move. I'm not a military guy, so I'm speaking out of my depth here. But the, 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 taking the hill is part of what's needed to accomplish a further task. So if you give the commander's intent, you're giving freedom to some of the troops and lower leaders to say, well, there's no threat on that hill. We don't need to take that hill to accomplish um, the further aim and, and team of teams talks. I mean, it, it kind of reflecting back on that book, it sounds like there were a lot of unlearning cycles in the military. So, um, you know, back, back to your book. I mean, how do you, you write about, how would you describe this um, unlearning cycle? Because it's not just unlearning and, and, and to stop doing something you've been doing, but can you talk about how that fits into organizational change? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, when I talk a lot about unlearn, pe people sometimes actually get quite upset because they sort of feel like, well, what are you saying? E everything I know is wrong. I need to just throw all that away. And really what I'm saying is, no, it's not. Um, like unlearning is a process of letting go or reframing or moving away from once useful mindsets and acquired behaviors that were effective in the past, but now maybe limiting your success. So it's not forgetting, removing or discarding your knowledge or experience. It's just a conscious act of letting go of outdated information and taking in new information to inform your decision making and action. And, and the way I try to think about this is, you know, we, we, in all our lives, we've learned these behaviors that make us successful. And, you know, as we become more successful, we attribute more and more sort of calcification of the behaviors that got us from one place to another. And then suddenly, you know, we're in these positions or roles where we have to do something we haven't done before or we're using the methods that we've always used, and then suddenly things stop working and we don't know why. And often the natural inclination is to blame the other person, is to blame luck, to blame you know, some advent scenario, rather than to look on ourselves and say, well, you know, the outcome I'm aiming for is, is X, and I'm using a set of behaviors to get there, and I don't seem to be getting there with those behaviors. Maybe those behaviors are the problem. Maybe I need to adapt to the system that I'm in rather than expecting the system to adapt to me. And, and it, you know, it got, it got me really excited when I was coaching a lot of these senior executives, right? They're CEOs of these massive organizations. So all their feedback mechanisms were telling them that the behaviors they're using them are, are working because they're the CEO of the company. Like what, you know, and, um, you know, so it, it, it's a hard sort of juncture. But then when, when you start to explain to them, well, it's not, you know, you, the world change, the customer changes, technology changes. So, so we constantly have to adapt to changing circumstances. So you need a system to 
both be able to learn new things, but unlearn the things that are no longer relevant to the outcome you're aiming for and recognize when your behaviors are working and not working and adapt. And when I start to frame it like that, people, it's a sort of aha for people. Exactly, you know, and I think um, it gives people sort of uh, license then to, to say, yeah, it's okay then. So really, you know, I need a way to know if what I'm doing is working or not working in line with the outcomes I'm trying to achieve. And that then opens up this whole curiosity element to them. And they're willing to sort of try new behaviors, experiment with new ways of working and see if it moves them towards the outcomes they're aiming for. And when it does, then they have this sort of breakthrough moment. So the, the way I try to describe it is this cycle of unlearning. I, I realized it was actually a system. But by being clear about, you know, uh, an outcome that you're aiming for, and if your behaviors are not working, that's a signal that you probably need to unlearn. Another signal is if you're, you know, problems you're avoiding, or you've been trying to solve a problem for a while and everything you do just isn't working. They're all great signals that you probably need to unlearn your current behavior. And then really it's about defining that outcome that you're aiming for, and then relearning, like starting small and experimenting with new behaviors to see if they can move you towards this outcome you're aiming for. Um, and, you know, relearning is, an ex is experimentation at its heart. It's, it's trial and error. It's trying things that might feel uncomfortable to you, um, but they could be the behaviors that unlock the outcome you're aiming for. Um, and what I find is by going through this sort of relearning process, when people find this sort of click, they get these breakthroughs in their thinking, in their behavior, in, in the outcomes they're aiming for. And that's sort of a, a moment then for them to recognize that actually this is a really powerful system because it's not, again, it's not a one and done process. You just don't unlearn once in your life and you're, everything's suddenly perfect. It's a, it's a continuous um, adaptive process. So, and, you know, so what I found from working with a lot of these leaders is once they have this sort of breakthrough, they realize it's a continuous breakthrough. So one of my favorite examples was, uh, is working with the leadership team from International Airlines Group. They own British Airways, Iberian, uh, Velling, Level. They, they're, they're about the sixth largest airline in the world by revenue. And I, I, I have a program called Exec Camp where I get executives to leave their business in some instances up to eight weeks with the goal of launching new businesses to disrupt their existing companies. Now, that process is one, to create new products, but it's also a process to disrupt the individual's behavior themselves by getting them to work in new different ways. It's a safe-to-fail relearning experience for them. And you know, on the sort of first week of uh, the program, one of the senior execs was, had this idea to transform the airline industry. And all we had to do was just build their idea. Um, and that's just a person who'd been in the industry for 20 years or senior exec in the largest airlines. Like who, who says their expertise isn't, isn't correct and they wouldn't know this stuff. But um, we got them to sit down and test their idea with a customer. So how do, how do you think the test went? Uh, there, I'm sure that there were probably some surprises. Right. So they, they, they showed the customer this great idea that they had. The customer didn't get it at all thought it didn't make sense to them. What do you think the leader's initial reaction was? 
Well, I, I know this from reading the first couple chapters of the book, but I guess I might have guessed that there was probably denial or defensiveness. Right. So they were like, that wrong. this is the wrong customer for my dear. Bring me the next one. You know, and we sort of went through this cycle a couple of times until, you know, we sort of sat down after about three or four goes. And I sat down with them and said, reflecting, it's like, what do you think the problem is? And they're like, well, it's the idea that sucks, not the customer. And and this was sort of like their unlearning moment, right? Where they were used to, as a senior leader, sort of pushing their ideas onto customers rather than pulling them and listening for the problem, the demand, and, and building around that. But um, But that executive went on to be possibly one of the best experimenters I think I've ever worked with because that sort of insight reactivated this curiosity in them. They started to realize that their their expertise could actually be a limiting function for them. And they started to think a lot about their assumptions more as hypothesis and they should be tested. And what they needed was a system to rapidly test these assumptions they had and learn what works and what doesn't. So that, that was a really powerful mechanism for them, you know, and, and even after the exec camp, about three months later, they sent me this great email where one of their team had come into the office and said, hey, we've just built this new product. Can you sign it off for us? And their response was, well, why are you asking me to sign it off? You should be in the airport getting customers to test it and sign it off. You know, so, so it's just like a great story of going through this cycle and how it becomes a, a, a massive differentiator in their performance and their decision-making and their ability to achieve these amazing results. And um, you know, that's, that's what I've sort of really enjoyed is seeing the system, working with these leaders as they apply the system, and then the results that they're sort of getting on the back of that is, is being extremely exciting. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what other than maybe, you know, as you described, this process of, you know, trial and denial and trial and denial and trial and, okay, well, I guess it's error. You know, trial and error requires someone to admit that, some, you know, that, that there's something they can change instead of blaming others. I mean, how, how, what, I mean, how does somebody realize, other than maybe some painful experiences like that, that past knowledge is outdated or the way they've been doing things before while having led to success is now an obstacle. Um, does, this, does this have to come through an experiential approach? Well, one of the things, and again, it's sort of like a system in itself, right? There's the individual, there's the context and the sort of openness to, you know, you have to experience some of these difficulties to get these breakthroughs. And, um, And the way I think about it is you've got to sort of, first of all, have courage to try new things, right? To put yourself out there, get uncomfortable. And now the the countermeasure to getting uncomfortable is you need to make it safe. So I I couldn't have got that senior executive to feel safe if he was running this, uh, you know, idea in front of the entire company. If he got that reaction from that customer, he would you know, his, his whole behavior would be very different than whether it's me, him, and this customer sitting in a room together, just ourselves, right? So you've got to create this safety uh, environment where people can experiment in a, in a safe manner, uh, succeed and fail in a controlled way. Now, but it takes courage to put yourself into that scenario. And then, then you do need this idea of, of your self-awareness and some humility to understand that there may be better ways to do things that you're doing. 
And again, this is one of the reasons why I say it's really important to define the outcomes you're aiming for, because that that gives you a sense of if I'm am I achieving those outcomes? No. Well, then it's probably what I'm doing rather than luck or chance that is causing that to happen. That that requires self awareness and humility. Rather than blaming others, you've got to own it yourself. And in many ways, the only things we can control is our own behaviors rather than the system around it. So it's, it sort of makes sense for me to do that. But for many people, that's, again, counterintuitive to look at themselves rather than to look externally as what the problem might be. And, and then it's really just about, you know, when, when you're willing to be uncomfortable, have courage to try that, taking ownership uh, that things aren't working and you need to do something rather than blame other people. It then just opens yourself up to all this vulnerability and new opportunity to grow that's outside your comfort zone, that you're learning new things. And and what I find with um, especially these high performers is they, they want to make good decisions. They want to achieve the outcomes they're aiming for. And if you're willing to put yourself in that situation, in those scenarios, and you're learning better information to make better decisions and achieve your outcomes, well, then that's where they see the, the power of these systems and they want to use them. And they actively look for scenarios where they can get outside their comfort zone, where they can sort of find new information to make better decisions and get these results. And, you know, you know, when I think about the amount of people out there who are constantly doing that, like um, one of the highlights for me in the last few weeks is that Serena Williams has, has been reading on Learn. And this is and you, uh, you wrote about you wrote about her and, and her coach in the book. Yeah, like and and her story is just phenomenal, right? As as an athlete who continues to improve, well beyond what would be the standard deviation of someone in, as as a high performance athlete in her age and what she's achieving, is she's constantly looking for new ways to improve, recognizing the things that made her successful in the past might be the things that make her successful in the future, and she's constantly adapting her skills based on. You know, the, the challenges she's facing as her body changes, as she, as she gets fitter and all, all these amazing things that she has done to achieve what are, are truly exceptional results in her career. And, you know, that requires a dedication to get uncomfortable, to try new things, all in the pursuit of uh, the outcome she's aiming for, which is, is true greatness, winning more titles. And, and I think that there's something you can see in these high performance people, whether they're athletes like her, whether they're business leaders and CEOs in, in these organizations, whether it's yourself and you're just trying to get better at whatever you choose to pursue, you know, you've got to be willing uh, to do things that sometimes are a bit uncomfortable to get there, that feel alien, that are different. But I think if you can embrace that thinking, uh, that's where you can get some really uh, amazing outcomes and, and extraordinary results. So, so with Serena's story, you know, for, for being an all-time great athlete, not just an all-time great tennis player even, you know, with her level of performance, what, what was unlearned as opposed to evolving um, a, a style of play or an approach to tennis that, that was already, um, you know, all-time great performance? So what's, what's um, the story I share in the book is, is, is really interesting. In, in sort of 2012, she was the number one athlete uh, in, in our female tennis player in the world. Um, but then she sort of like 
had some problems. She started like losing matches. Um, she she you know lost in, in some of um, the Grand Slam events, which are sort of like the seminal events in the tennis arena. Um, she lost in like some finals. Then she started losing in some f- fourth round. But eventually, she in Paris in uh, in twenty fourteen, she lo- lost in the first round, which had never happened to her in her life. And every uh, everybody was sort of writing her off at this stage. You know, she was into her thirties. The average age for tennis players is like twenty six. She was starting, and you know, so all the sort of metrics were were pointing towards this sort of um, it's 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 slowly coming to an end. The curtain is starting to close on her career, and. Um, after being knocked out, she sort of went, found her way to, uh, uh, in Paris, she found a court to go and practice. And it was, the court was run by a guy called Patrick Morfordu. And he, his father was an entrepreneur. He founded one of the first renewable energy companies in, in France. So, so multi-billionaire. He wanted Patrick to take over his business. Patrick had a passion for tennis. So, but he, you know, t- uh, conformed to his father's wishes for a period of time. And then, then he really was like, look, I need to go do this tennis thing. And he set up his own academy. And, um, you know, they, he, at the same time, Serena found her way to his uh, academy and she was practicing there and he watched her for a while, gave her some very sort of uh, unvarnished feedback about how she was playing. And she was sort of curious enough to respond to that and go, that's interesting. Let's, let's work on some of the feedback he gave her. And, you know, they, they were sort of, you know, she wanted to win again. He was sort of um, in the tennis establishment. He was seen as unorthodox, a bit of a sort of renegade in his methods because he, he was a big advocate of encouraging an experimental approach for each individual athlete. Rather, tennis is often very rigid about how they teach people how to play. He had a very experimental approach to, to helping people improve and adapting to each individual athlete. And, and the two worked together for a week. She went uh, home to the US just before she went back to Wimbledon. Uh, she basically got, you know, took Patrick as her coach. This is after her father, who had teached her since she was a kid, was her coach. And, and the, really what happened from there is sort of uh, exceptional. You know, she 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 won uh, Melbourne, or she won the next uh, Grand Slam at Wimbledon. She won the U.S. Open. She won gold medal at the the Olympics. Her, she her results basically improved by in the region of seventy one percent in terms of her Grand Slam victories over the last few years. They they have formed this amazing partnership, and a lot of it was really helping her take a much more experimental approach to the way she prepared for the game. Things that she did before, she, like before she would not analyze athletes. They, you know, he he started to introduce some of that thinking to her, you know. And but th- a lot of this stuff was then evolving together. And you know, it's a, a lot of people will say some of the the toughest things about Serena is her mindset. She has this phenomenal mindset that even when she's losing, that she has found ways to come back and beat opponents. She has the best sort of recovery record of any tennis athlete if she loses the first set of a game she still has a 50 50 chance of winning the game most people the the industry average is about 25 percent if you lose the first first set so she has this amazing ability to even in game scenarios adapt to changing circumstances 
and even unlearn some of her behaviors in the game that are holding her back and evolve to find, relearn new things to get there. So it was just a really inspiring individual um, that, that I discovered had sort of either intentionally and intuitively had a system to sort of do this. And um, it really inspired me uh, as I was sort of trying to show that this isn't just for CEOs or executives or people in business. It, are, it, it applies to people in athletics and it applies to just you as an individual yourself and your pursuit uh, of trying to improve. And um, I just wanted to make sure that we shared sort of a, that breadth of example um, for people uh, that it, that anyone can unlearn if, if they're willing yeah. to give it a go. Yeah, I mean, it is an inspirational turnaround um, and you know, re- resurgence um, that that Serena has had. I mean, what what are some of the takeaways then? I mean, it's inspirational, but if a large company executive or a startup CEO is listening, I mean, what what are the parallels? Is one of the lessons that these executives probably need a coach to help them see things that they might have blind spots about? Um, you know, it's probably easier said than done to discover or admit that you've, um, you know, that you need to unlearn. Is, is that a key part of it? Do, do you work with executives or, or organizations in this way? Or what, what, what's, the, what's the parallel for, you know, steps an executive should take? Yeah, so I think starting at the individual level is you've got to sort of be curious and, and have humility. You've got to recognize potentially that some of the things that you're doing might not be the most effective ways of doing things. And, and be open to sort of going against your existing mental models and behaviors. So it and and that sort of requires ownership, right? Owning that maybe what I'm doing is not the right thing. Maybe there's a better way, and then committing to trying to find that. And the other things then I say is you've got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. So you've got to actively start to put yourself in scenarios where. You might know all the answers that are uncertain to you, that you're going to have to try new things that you've never done before and likely fail. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I think creating safety is so important, is creating these sort of safe-to-fail scenarios where you can experiment with these new behaviors and see what works and what doesn't. And I think, um, so that's all individual stuff, just to start. And then I think really where you can accelerate these things, as you alluded to, is you know, having other feedback mechanisms in place. So be that a coach, be that your peers, be that, and you know, people that, uh, that you work with who are willing and, and you're inviting feedback to help you be aware of some of your blind spots or let you know, are you moving towards the outcomes that you're, that you're aiming for? And I think while uh, coaches are great to do that, obviously the, the example with uh, Serena and Patrick you know that's that that was the the kickoff point for them, and they've gone on to do great things together. Um, you know, and when I work with really high performing teams, what I find is that there is very healthy cultures of feedback within the team, mm-hmm. where people are are not afraid to tell CEOs that their behavior is not driving the results they want, and and CEOs are willing to accept that information and use it to adapt their behavior. You know, and I think um. Where th- these things all go sour is where you have individuals who are overly ego driven, who believe that they can't, they, they're always correct. Uh, and then they build systems around them that don't invite challenge, that don't invite feedback to come to them. 
And, um, you know, my experience of seeing people who create those scenarios is that, that they don't achieve a lot of the outcomes that they want or people start to leave the company because it doesn't feel like an adaptive place to work. And, um, yeah, so th- there, there are some of the things I would get, you know, your listeners and, and senior leaders to think about, but leaders at all levels to think about is, you know, be curious, uh, own, own the outcomes you're achieving and the behaviors you've got, uh, commit to, to being comfortable with being uncomfortable and, and create some scenarios for that in a safe to fail way and, um, and build those feedback mechanisms into everything you're doing, be it through your, your, your colleagues, through coaches that you actively seek for. And, and I, I guarantee you'll be amazed by some of the results you receive. Yeah. Well, in, you know, in the book, and as you, as you were talking about here, uh, you know, the, the, re- the requirement of courage, self-awareness, humility, uh, there, there's a parallel, uh, reminds me of one of my favorite books. I think it's a really unappreciated, underappreciated book. It's called Toyota by Toyota, and it's written by uh, American uh, Toyota uh, leaders. And, you know, in chapter one, and, you know, they emphasize that continuous improvement requires this combination of courage and humility uh, from leaders. A lot of leaders who've been successful have a lot of courage they're bold, they're decisive, they have all the answers. It might not be paired with humility and it might not be um, the approach that's going to work in a, you know, a world where it's, it's, it's changing around them and changing so in an you know, increasingly accelerated way. So there's, there's a lot of really good stuff here. And I, I think it's good that it, it, it's, you know, it's kind of, um, there, I think there are some common themes um, out there in, in some of the books about Lean or, or, or Toyota. But maybe one other thing I wanted to ask you, Barry, before we wrap up, you know, one of the things stood out in the book, and I think there's a common theme and a lot of discussion about this in the broader community, lean community, the idea that the best leaders don't have all the answers, they ask better questions. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit and uh, maybe talk about, you know, how, how can somebody learn how to ask better questions over time? Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, the Toyota by Toyota book as well. You know, like a, a lot of, and you can probably see the parallels of my thinking has been inspired by the work of, of Toyota and this idea of courage and humility, you know, and yeah, I, you know, I was a big fan of the Toyota Kata book as well. And this concept of sort of like the Andon Cord. So when there is a problem on the line at, at Toyota and they, and they pull this cord and the manager comes over, you know, the, the manager doesn't come over to the employee and tell them how to fix the scenario. The, the manager has a series of questions that helps the employee get mentally unblocked. And, and they've created a safe environment. <laughs> they don't get yelled at. It's safe to pull the end on cord. It's expected. It's encouraged. It's rewarded. Right. And so they're very, very powerful systems. And really, you know, that that's sort of what sort of inspired that uh, sort of uh, quote for me is, as you said, this leaders don't have all the answers. They ask better questions. And, you know, what I have found by this idea of asking questions is the better questions you get, the better information you get, better information you get, better decisions you make. And I think like that, that sort of thing of rather than always trying to be the expertise that can actually hold you back from getting these breakthroughs and and you know a little test i often have for some of these executives is i always say to them 
when's the last time where you gave someone a challenge to solve and they came back with a sort of counterintuitive way to solve it or didn't do the way you would do it? You know, did you shut them down and say, no, that's wrong, you need to do it this way? Or did you sort of were curious enough to say, well, what, why have you taken this approach? And, and what are you learning as a result of taking that approach? Yeah, and it's, it's a very subtle thing. But again, if you are, are, are forcing your assumptions as to how to solve problems on people, you're never giving yourself an opportunity to learn potentially something new or different. Because that person could understand a new technology that there's an easier way to do it. Or they, they, they actually might just have a different perspective that, that drives more innovation than the way you did it was. But again, and so it's it's this is the sort of humility aspect of it, and the curious aspect of it is, you know, sp- even just spending those two minutes to ask those questions rather than give the people the answer, you know, you're you're building an environment where people are willing to try things that are that they'll experiment, that you'll learn new things, and ultimately that's what I feel leads to higher performance is. You have a whole group of company that people are willing to try new things, learn what works and what doesn't, rather than this top-down command and control environment where you're just told what to do. You know, and to go back to your point of commander's intent, you know, that 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 is what it is designed to do. You know, we want to take this hill. I've given you the outcome. Now I'm going to trust my soldiers based on their skills, their competencies, their knowledge, the emergent information on the ground that they're going to make good decisions aligned towards achieving that outcome. Because, you know, why would I hire smart people and tell them what to do? I trust the people at the front line where the information is richest, most fresh, most current to make good decisions based on the intent or the outcome we're aiming for. And I think that's why you see, even in organizational context, when you sort of devolve the command down to these small cross-functional teams that are making decisions aligned towards an outcome that you've described, like a capital one, where we would say, you know, increase customer conversion or reduce our churn by 20% on this application, the teams are making the decisions at a local level that are aligned towards that intent. And, and, and that's what creates high performance because everybody is moving, making decisions. They're not limited by waiting on decisions from the CEOs or having to write 50-page PowerPoint decks to get sign off to make a decision to move. And um, that's what I've seen from the company I've been working with that moves them from a command and control organization to uh, you know, commander's intent, outcome-based approach to experimentation and evolving at speed. Um, and there are some of the lessons I've learned and, and shared case studies from companies like Capital One and NASA, uh, British Airways, the NHS, all these really, really interesting organizations that are often considered to be big, bureaucratic, slow moving, but they've managed to build this experimental approach in the way that they're working and, and are starting to achieve some truly sort of extraordinary results. Well, and that's that's encouraging that some of these, you know, big organizations, you might equate big with slow, that they can become uh, more agile um, and, and more nimble in their approach. So I, I definitely you know, I encourage people to, uh, to read the book. Again, it's titled Unlearn, Let Go of Past Success to Achieve Extraordinary Results. Um, I'm, I'm, I've I, you know, read the first three or four chapters. I'm looking forward to 
reading the rest of it, including um, you've piqued my interest with uh, the NHS story. Uh, but Barry, where can people learn more uh, about the book and, and your work uh, online? What, where, where would you point them? The book's available uh, clearly through Amazon. It's probably available through some major bookstores, I'm guessing. Where, where would you point people? Yeah, so um, my website is barryoreilly.com. I'm on Twitter at, at Barry O'Reilly as well. And uh, specifically for this uh, Unlearn book, there's a website called onlearn.online. And you can go there to see um, you know, wh- where I'll be giving talks or seminars related to the book. But the thing I'm um, quite excited about now is I'm going to be starting to share people's unlearning stories on that site. So, so many people who've read this book have you know, really unlearned and are very excited about it. I've had everything from people quitting smoking to um, a lady who came to one of the talks in Australia, you know, le- left to talk with two experiments that she was going to go and run. She dropped me an email last week to say that she's quit her job and started her own company on the back of it. So it's pretty exciting. Um, and, I, I, and, you know, I want, I want people to share their stories of unlearning because, you know, that makes it sort of safe and it normalizes this behavior of recognizing that we are going to have to constantly adapt to changing circumstances. As you said, the pace of change is only accelerating. So our rate of learning and unlearning is going to have to accelerate too as well. So, um, you know, I want people to share these stories. And so maybe look, look for the hashtag uh, on learning stories uh, in the future. And I think you're going to find some fun stuff as well. Well, great. Well, look, look forward to see uh, what, what's being shared. I'll uh, look for that and encourage people to uh, check that out and to continue following your work. So, again, our guest today has been uh, Barry O'Reilly, author of the books Lean Enterprise, How High-Performing Organizations Innovate at Scale, and most recently here, uh, as we've been talking about today, Unlearn, Let Go of Past Success to Achieve Extraordinary Results. Barry, it's really been a pleasure talking today. Um, Thank you for taking the time and and sharing all of this with us. It's been a pleasure, and, and also thank you, Mark, for all the inspiration you've provided me with your work as well. So it's been great to be on the show. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.